The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week was all about crypto with plenty more tweets from Elon and some roller coaster market moves. The sector really has gone so much mainstream, so much so that even old school institutions like Christie's are getting in on it. So after their landmark sale of Beeple's everyday NFT in March sold for $69 million, the auction house is investing further in digital art. So we spoke with CEO Garon Saruti about their recent spring sales, which included a group of nine crypto punks. I mean, I don't get this stuff, but he does. So I started by asking him, what are people really buying when they buy an NFT? Well, let me first tell you that we, we are just at the end of a fantastic weeks of sales uh, here in, in New York. We have sold for 800 million of art in three days. Fantastic. Uh, the market is more resilient than ever. Uh, we have completely recovered from uh, a more challenging year last year, where the supply was uh, more difficult to get. Uh, this season has been extraordinary with uh, many top prices for great artists, recognized artists, Picasso, Monet, Van Gogh, Rothko, Basquiat, but also, like you mentioned, for, for NFTs and, and, and new artists. Um, what, what to your point, what, what, what is it? Well, it's a, it's a real community of artists, uh, digital artists, that we have revealed at Christie's to the world, selling two months ago for 69 million a work by the digital people. And two days ago, in our major sale of the season in New York, we sold again nine crypto punks, uh, other wonderful example, uh, 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 artworks, mm -hmm. digital artworks for $16 million. So this market is real. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's about the rarity, it's about authenticity. Uh, that's what the NFT provide to the collectors in this yeah. field. Guillaume, talk to me about the type of collector here, the type of collector that is uh, dipping their toe into some of these NFTs and cyberpunks. Is that the same collector that's buying up a Schutz or a Basquiat or a Monet? Well, not for the moment, but that's coming. Not for the moment because, um, for instance, when we sold this work by Beeple uh, two months ago, 34 bidders did bid in excess of $1 million. 30 out of these 34 were new to Christie's. There were uh, clients or collectors only active in the digital art world. We did not know them. But since then, we have seen also, let's say, traditional clients being interested in uh, crypto art, being interested in uh, um, you know, sometimes paying in cryptocurrencies. So it's, it's, it's a new reality on the art market. It started 
with only you know the the uh, uh, the crypto community, the the digital art community, but it's clear that it's now going beyond. We are we are at the very beginning of a process. Right. I want to go back to the question I asked originally. So we all know that like these images, even the uh, the people that sold for almost seventy million dollars, in theory, you know, someone could go on the website and right click it and download it. So we know that that's, it's not the image itself that's being sold. What is being sold? When someone buys a crypto punk, what do they have then that someone else doesn't have? Well, whatever, you know, the, the, the field in the art world, what makes the value right. of, you know, an artifact or a work is the authenticity and the unicity of the work. Even then, if the work can be copied, uh, if you can have photos of this work, it's a different story. It's about the, the uh, IP at that moment. But what the value is with the authenticity and the unicity and, and the fact that today the blockchain yeah. uh, and the NFT do provide these two uh, uh, features makes the value of what you buy. Uh, it, it's about, one more time, the rarity and the authenticity of what you purchase. All right. So going forward here, uh, Guillaume, we are coming out of the COVID crisis. I know there were some disruptions in the art market over the past 12, 14 months or so. But we did see some of the auctions that did take place, the virtual ones at least, still commanded uh, a pretty high number of buyers here. I'm wondering how much resiliency you saw during the pandemic and what your general expectations are for demand going forward. 2020 was very resilient, especially on the demand side. At no moment last year, we have seen a disruption in terms of uh, the buying power of our clients. We have more and more new clients, especially coming from Asia, millennials. Uh, the, the challenge last year was not on this side. The challenge last year was more about the supply. Our clients were reluctant to uh, uh, put at auction uh, their works. They, they, they wanted to wait uh, until taking their decision. Uh, this year, uh, it's clear that the demand remained very strong as it was last year. Nothing has changed from this point of view. Yesterday, for instance, we had huge participation from Asia on some of the top lots we sold. But what has changed now is that our clients on the selling side, uh, the consigners, are uh, you know more confident. Uh, because they have seen that the market is resilient, that the demand is strong, and so they, they are, they are, they are, you know, uh, uh, willing to sell. This season was, from this point of view, sort of back to 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, look at the top price yeah. we have achieved at Christie's yesterday. We sold for 103 million, a major work by Picasso. It's the first time in two years that we have on the art market at auction a price yeah. in excess of 100 million. We are back to the market as it was in 2019 after this very particular 2020 uh, year. And then on Monday, we saw shades of what was going to come in crypto volatility. Crypto had fallen as low as $42,133 on Monday after Tesla CEO Elon Musk weighing in on Twitter about his decision to stop accepting the coin for car purchases because of its environmental impact. We got reaction from Mike Novogratz, the founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital, which had also just reported its first quarter earnings. Bloomberg Wall Street correspondent Sonali Basak joined us for the interview, and we started by asking Novogratz how he plans to keep up those results 
if he thinks Bitcoin is probably going to consolidate for a while. Well, listen, you know, when I say consolidate, I think Bitcoin will be somewhere between, you know, 40 and 55,000 for the next chapter before it kind of builds up enough new momentum to take out at 55,000 and end the year much higher. Um, listen, we have a diversified business. We're not all Bitcoin. We uh, are invested across the ecosystem. We have mining, we have a great venture business. We have a lot of DeFi and, and NFT and, and virtual world bets on. And so what we're trying to build here is diversity. Uh, we look at the whole crypto ecosystem as thriving. Uh, I said today on an earnings call that this is, you know, we're a growth business in a growth industry. Right now, total market cap of all of crypto is about $2 trillion, a little more than that. That's half a percent of global wealth. I think it'll be two, three, four percent of global wealth in the years to come. And how, so that's where the galaxy's bet is. Mike, how concerned are you about the short-term volatility being introduced by Elon Musk? Listen, Elon Musk is a important figure in uh, American business uh, and certainly in the global retail uh, crypto world, he's a bit of an icon. Uh, he was great for crypto when he was positive for, for Bitcoin. He's caused some, some issues. I think if you take Elon at face value though, what he said was, he worried that as Bitcoin used more and more electricity, which it will, uh, it could have a negative uh, impact on, on uh, you know, CO2 emissions. Uh, that's true for every industry, right? I, I was looking today, YouTube uses two and a half percent of total electricity. I mean, think about that. We're not going to say, hey, let's stop using YouTube, right? We use electricity for things that we think provide a tremendous amount of value. And so I think you're going to see a response from this industry, like you should see a response from every industry to say, hey, in this gap of time before all electricity is green energy, which I think is seven, eight years away, uh, we should do something to offset uh, our footprints. And that's in banking, it's in crypto, it's in tech, it's in industrial businesses. All right, but is it a problem or does it bother you that, you know, the, the industry that you're part of that is trying to make it respectable and you're talking about bringing crypto to wealth management and crypto for inflation protection and crypto for allowing people to make transactions that uh, in places where maybe they're more limited, freedom tech. Is it problematic that like one of the hottest currencies is a joke, Doge, and that Elon Musk, who is this like sort of like face of it all, is essentially whipping people into that one and sort of multiplying the jokes. And you have other influential people talking about even other jokes. And that this sort of like, does it make it harder to put on a, you know, basically make the case that there's a serious industry with a straight face? Well, listen, I, yes is the answer. Uh, I tell you a better story than Elon Musk. You know, Doge's cousin called Shiba Inu coin. Yeah. They end up giving Vitalik Buterin, who really is one of the, the most decent and smartest guys in this entire space, a giant amount of coins. And he donated a bunch to India and he burned the rest and said, please don't give any more coins. I'm not going to play your games. Um, I don't want to discredit the Doge community or any of these communities, right? What you're seeing here is a response against the monetary policy of the U.S. and the world and the frustration people have had with the system. And this young generation has said, hey, we can band together and create our own way of investing. Some of it is frivolous and I think will end in tears. And so we try to steer our clients away from pro projects that we don't think have long-term sustainability. 
uh, but it proves something that communities can band together, right? The world has gotten very tribal and that's not necessarily a good thing. And if you go on like crypto Twitter, you really realize just how tribal it's gotten. You know, one well, of my buddies made some ne negative Doge comments and he got six death threats. And so yeah, that's not good. Uh, but I do think let's not miss the forest through the trees. Underneath it all, there's a huge revolution going on run by serious people who are trying to rebuild the financial market infrastructure in this place. Well, you mentioned uh, your investments in the DeFi space and one of the really, you know, decentralized. One of the cool things about that whole space is this ability to make trades directly on chain, to put together assets on chain, funds on chain, lending on chain. Is it a threat as a, you know, sort of as a listed crypto company like yours, like a Coinbase, et cetera, if people discover that they can sort of bypass regulated institutions and do everything they need to do directly. Yeah, I, I tell my guys all the time, you know, we are a bridge between the, the old way of doing business and a new way, and we might have to bite off our arm to grow a new one, hmm. right? We're investing in all those protocols. It's not gonna happen overnight, right? There's still gonna be FAs that guide their clients into how to think about investing in the world. You know, we just spent a lot of money on a big custody business. I think custody is going to be around for a long time. But if it was just custody, I wouldn't have bought it. Right. It was the engineers there to build new things on chains that I was really excited about. So uh, my and so, yes, we're going to part of Galaxy is going to be iterated away, just like lots of the uh, uh, legacy financial systems. So, Mike, as we try, sort of try to bridge these two worlds, I mean, one question you get from a lot of people who are interested in this space is how you, can you be sort of exposed uh, to the potential upside in the crypto space, uh, but maybe uh, sort of anchor it more towards something that isn't the coins themselves. So they ask sort of about specific companies. So whether you're talking about, I don't know, a MicroStrategy or a Tesla or a Facebook or something like that, when you talk about getting exposure to the crypto space through that angle there, what's the general selling point? Well, listen, one of the reasons we went public way back I mean, in Canada was just that, to give a holistic bet for people that can play the entire ecosystem. Listen, MicroStrategy is a great bet if you want to play Bitcoin, uh, as is you know other, other Bitcoin funds. But I think we're really the only public vehicle where you're playing in the whole ecosystem at this point. Um, you know, the, the other way is having to buy an index of DeFi coins or or a basket, you know, or a venture fund. But from the public market perspective, uh, there's not a whole lot of options at this point. There's not a whole lot of options, but at the end of the day, these people are looking for a way, I guess, to tamp down the volatility or at least avoid some of the volatility that we've seen here. Is there a way to do that? Is there a way to sort of hedge that volatility out of the equation or at least, you know, tamp sure. it down? Sure. Listen, you know, one of the misnomers is if you're trading in a high vol asset, you have to have a whole lot of risk on. So we always tell people it's position sizing, right? When you're first, your first bet into Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the coins, don't pay 10% of your net worth and, and don't go levered in it, right? A two to 3% bet, even on a 20% drawdown, what have you lost? If, if you bet 3%, you've lost 60 basis points. Uh, that's a little bit painful, but you're not gonna you know, run out the, the, the house with your hair on fire because of it. And so a lot of this is about sizing um, and diversity, right? So why we set this business up is because we have diversity across businesses, across investment styles uh, and across protocols. And I think that should give us, listen, we'll still be, if, if the market cap of crypto isn't higher in a year, uh, we're going to have a harder time. If it's much lower, we're not going to have made a whole lot of money. 
Like so we are a growth bet on an industry we think is growing. What do you do today, Mike, right? What do you do today on a day that Bitcoin has been seeing a slow bleed for a couple of days? You know, it's a lot of, you know, rough headlines really in the last week or so. Are you buying? Are you selling? Uh, you know, are you buying Ethereum? What are you doing right now? I Listen, I think 42,000 should hold in Bitcoin, so we're buying. Uh, we are selling volatility because in times when everyone gets nervous like today, volatility gets really, really high. And so often selling volatility makes sense. And then we're looking across our portfolio. Are there places that haven't reacted yet uh, in doing what traders do? But mostly it's business as usual, right? We have an investing business. There are three investment committee meetings today on new projects coming through the pipe. Uh, we're talking to our customers, seeing what they want to do. You know, we're building, we, we have 200 people, will be 350 or 400 by the time we settle with uh, and close with BitGo. And so we're building a in big industry that's not just a, a big company, that's not just a bet on Bitcoin. Do you hear, um, you know, it feels to me in conversations like what the enthusiasm around Bitcoin from a few years ago, I'm hearing a lot of people get really excited about ETH specifically. And maybe it's because they want a gateway to DeFi and a lot of that stuff is built on that. Maybe it sort of makes sense, the sort of idea of smart contracts and cloud computer and all that stuff. Is that your sense that there are sort of a lot of like mainstream finance people yeah, listen, who are seeing ETH specifically as the sort of way into crypto in a way that makes sense to them? ETH is certainly having a moment uh, and it's having a moment for good reason. It's of the, the base lever protocols that are programmable. Uh, it's the most decentralized by a long shot. It has the most developers and projects being built on it by a long shot. And right now it's got the triple whammy. It's got payment coins, i.e. stable coins being built on top of it. It's got DeFi being built on top of it, and it has NFTs being built on top of it. So the three major thrusts of the crypto revolution are being built on top of Ethereum. Now listen, there are competitors to it that are faster, uh, and mm -hmm. process quicker, they're less, so, less decentralized. Mike, what what is the next leg then for Ethereum here? You know, what's the next thing to happen? You, the next use case, perhaps, that will send it higher. L listen. So everyone always, you know, I mean, listen. Ethereum went from eight hundred to four thousand uh, in five months, and people are like, how does it get higher? How does it get higher? It's had a great run, and so people understand it's had a great run. And so if it consolidates in here for a while, between you know, 3,000 and 4,000 or 2,800 even and 4,000. That's probably pretty healthy. Um, there's some technical uh, changes coming to the Ethereum protocol this summer, which is gonna speed it up and make gas fees a lot lower. Um, Ethereum's not a finished product yet, right? I always say Bitcoin is a finished product. Ethereum is a, is, is a work in, in progress, but it's got great momentum behind it and so Mike, Again, investors I'm, I'm curious because think they're going to make 100% every quarter. People were excited about the banks, Mike. You know, how much money has come in through the wealth funds since Morgan Stanley mm. has made that available? So, listen, the the Morgan Stanley was the first to come to come uh, out of the chute in the wealth funds. I would tell you that I think all the other banks are coming, and it's a process. You know, why I'm optimistic as can be is in the Morgan Stanley case, right? They have thousands, thousands and thousands of FAs that had to take a course to learn to understand how to sell Bitcoin, what Bitcoin was, to really get a deep understanding of it. And now they're talking to their clients. And so flows have come in, flows continue to come in. 
But think about that. I was like one of the lone wolves that used to talk about Bitcoin to people. And now also we, in essence, just inherited 4,000 Morgan Stanley salesmen who are, who are sharing the gospel. And I think you're going to see the same thing at Goldman Sachs and UBS and JP Morgan and all over the street. And so the prophesizers are growing in numbers at record pace. That can only mean good things in the future. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Now, Monday's moves were nothing compared to what we saw on Wednesday. It was a roller coaster ride for crypto. We saw a 31% drop at one point in Bitcoin and a 40% drop on Ethereum and close to a 50% drop in Doge. But the dip buyers did step in and we got to witness one of the most aggressive sell-off and one of the most aggressive rallies for an asset class all in the same session. Despite Elon's tweets, the sector did get some positive endorsements from the prominent names like the ones you'd expect, including Arc Investment Management, Kathy Wood, who told Bloomberg that it's still going to get to $500,000 one day. So we got reaction on all this from Suna Amha's general partner at venture capital firm Volt Capital, which invests in the crypto space. And we started by asking Suna, what does it say that a few tweets from Elon can generate such tremendous volatility in an asset class that's supposed to be decentralized and robust? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Joe. And that's that's a great question. So for those of us who've been in crypto through multiple cycles, a 30% uh, dip is just another Wednesday in crypto. It is yeah. a volatile asset class. But the thing to remember is that Bitcoin is still up 300% year to date. Um, these are healthy corrections. What we're seeing is if you look at the actual data of who's doing the selling, these are primarily new market entrants that are panicking. And um, in, in an emotional market, uh, we view it as a healthy correction and are staying focused on the long term. This was still a pretty epic drawdown here. And when we talk about the legitimacy uh, of this as an asset class and more importantly, uh, as a a significant component of someone's portfolio here, Suna. I mean, what do you tell them? How do you sort of coach them through this idea that you're going to have to deal with these types of drawdowns? Right. So the important thing to uh, remember is that nothing about Bitcoin has changed. It's still using the same consensus. It still has uh, the same proof of work system uh, providing security for it that keeps the protocol moving forward. Um, and it still serves as a global liquidity instrument. So to the extent that those things are all true, the only thing that's changed is Bitcoin's gotten cheaper. And right now we're seeing it at, uh, it's, frankly, this is a fire sale. So if you liked Bitcoin at a $60,000 price, then you should love it at a $40,000 price. <laughs> oh, well said. I am wondering, though, because you said corrections like these are healthy. Are they healthy when, like you said, it's coming from newer entrants, maybe retail buyers, maybe leveraged up, maybe for sellers? Does that change perhaps maybe the nature of the sell-off? 
so you cut out a little bit entirely your question, but these are healthy uh, sell-offs when they are primarily retail-driven and they're new market entrants that are coming into the market uh, and are panic selling when we're in an emotional market like this. If you look to corporate treasuries and you look to what institutions are doing, um, they are holding on to their positions. And so you don't want to look to what folks are saying, but you want to look to what they're doing. To the extent that you know, Tesla clarified that they aren't selling any of their Bitcoin, uh, that's a really important indicator to us and what we as a venture for, firm at Volt Capital uh, focus on when we're looking at the macro. Suna, your industry has a tremendous ability to just create new coins. There's only 21 million Bitcoins that will ever exist. But every day there are new coins. And we were joking around yesterday because someone created a new coin. It was a joke coin named after me. But it's very easy to just manufacture new coins. How much does the impulse among players in crypto to create some new coin of their own, some new token project, rather than building on an existing one, end up having the effect of swamping the demand with so much supply and limiting the upside price? Right. So we do typically see that um, in bull markets. That's absolutely true. Uh, the, the great thing about the way we've designed our uh, thesis at Volt Capital and what we focus on are the companies that are building around these digital assets. So those are truly the indicators you should be looking at when uh, measuring the health of the market. These are founders that are building equity companies that are leveraging digital assets because the end user is meaningfully using the service. They're typically 10x better solutions than anything else on the market. And it really doesn't matter what tokens you're minting or you know who's coming out with any joke coin. Right. Um, because these are you know really substantive use cases. And that's what we focus on at Volt Capital. All right. Well, let's talk about the prospect of regulation here, because this is now back in conversation, uh, not only given today's moves, but even before today, uh, there was a lot of talk about it. There was actually a hearing going on on Capitol Hill today uh, that kind of got overshadowed uh, by all of the market moves here. Are, are you sort of welcoming of some degree of regulation, some degree of signposts, of speed limits here in the market? Or does that sort of erode the appeal of what Bitcoin and crypto is to a lot of people? There's a common misconception that crypto as an industry isn't regulated, but crypto has been on the desk of every three to four letter organization you can think of um, since 2013. And uh, Corporations, venture firms, nonprofits are you know, pouring in millions to making sure that we standardize the language and are doing everything by the book uh, to the extent that uh, we can with this new asset class to ensure that um, you know this technological paradigm shift actually happens and um, and you know keep and we keep the retail uh, investor um, and institutions in mind and do things by the book. How much do you see uh, people getting excited about ETH and getting ETH-pilled, so to speak, because they're excited about DeFi and trading and trading on Uniswap? And how much do you see that sucking some of the energy away from Bitcoin itself? Look, speculation is not a bad thing. Speculation is often necessary uh, to get people to look up from their desks into this new interesting thing on the horizon. We're seeing uh, plenty of substantive use cases being built on top of Bitcoin, with Bitcoin, and outside of Bitcoin. Uh, Uniswap, Eclipse, you know, for instance, uh, Coinbase's volume, yeah. uh, and, uh, and, you know, seeing indicators like that is absolutely a positive for the space. 
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. And finally, we also got some perspective on the crypto moves from Gregory DePrisco, who is the CEO of RWA Company, as well as a community member of the MakerDAO ecosystem. And we started by talking about whether decentralized systems like crypto can buckle under extreme volatility. Yeah, honestly, you know, I, I see the volatility like today and I, I don't even get phased by it anymore. <laughs> I, I've, I've been in this space for about 11 years now. So this is wow. kind of just a, another Wednesday. Yeah, another Wednesday. <laughs> All right. So another Wednesday. I mean, it was a lot of volatility here. I think, uh, though, what a lot of people are getting at here, Greg, is that we've seen sort of a new sort of investor class come into this space, uh, particularly over the last year here. So it's not just necessarily, I guess, some of the cowboys who got there early. They understand the volatility. When you look at this new breed of investors that have come in, even including some of the institutions here, what's the general, uh, I guess, how would you sort of talk to these people about the volatility here? Is this here to stay? Is this something they just have to live with? Or are we going through an evolution where we'll see less and less of these types of drawdowns? I, I think that's entirely dependent on the narratives that surround the assets. So if the Fed hadn't printed God knows how many trillions of dollars, I don't think we'd see this volatility in Bitcoin. So it, it's a very, it's very much cause and effect. Uh, I think the volatility will go down a little from here, but the, the cycle that continually happens in crypto is people build up leverage, they get overconfident, and then they get crushed. And, and that's just part of the fact that a lot of these assets are extremely speculative. So I think the volatility is going to go down, but it's probably here to stay for a while. You know, Greg, one thing that Joe was was hinting on that I just want to circle back to is you have some stress on the exchanges like a Coinbase or a Binance or whatever. And and there are some stresses. Are there signs that those need to be firmed up to be able to handle more volatile days like these? Well, I think what you're seeing is that those exchanges, they they handle the on and off ramp portion of the business very well. But once you're into the trading with these brand new assets, it's hard for them to even keep up with listing all of them. So what you're seeing and you know, full disclosure, I, I own some of the tokens that back these protocols I'm about to reference. Yeah. So I have a bias. But uh, I think you're seeing a shift towards decentralized exchanges. You know, specifically, uh, Uniswap has really taken off in the last couple of years, if you're familiar with that. Okay, so let's talk about these decentralized exchanges, decentralized finance, MakerDAO, backer of the stablecoin DAI, which base uses over-collateralization to create a coin that roughly trades in line with the dollar. That's all great. It's very cool. The technology is very impressive. I am genuinely impressed when I look at Uniswap and the automated market maker technology and what uh, is done with Dow. But what is it all for? Where is the real world advantage or is it really just about creating more ways to trade more coins? No, no, the, the real world stuff's finally happening. That's actually uh, my company, RWA. It stands for Real World Asset Company. And, you know, in 
in the legacy economy, as, as we call it, you, you would just call them assets. But for us, it's anything that where the consensus mechanism is not a blockchain, okay. or, but it is actually the judicial system, that we call a real-world asset. And uh, MakerDAO, at least, is in the process of onboarding those assets right now. So we're able to, it's almost a new paradigm, because we're, we're able to let people come to the protocol. For instance, uh, a loan originator will come to the protocol, and they'll be able to generate DAI against their existing book of loans. So I, I think you're seeing immediate real-world utility. And is that utility, though, and the way that they're using that utility, is the idea here that this becomes uh, something they do in the short term, or are they sticking it out for a, a longer-term strategy? I think it's primarily long-term. I mean, what, you're, what we're seeing is that they're interested in swapping out revolvers and warehouses from their banks. So you're, you're seeing them replace facilities they have with an existing bank and come to a decentralized protocol like MakerDAO, not just because it can offer better rates, because it has better terms. Explain that more clearly. Who's getting the better rates? Whenever I hear about rates in DeFi, it's like great lending rates and APYs that blow your mind and 80% yields, if just a level. But what about from a sort of borrower perspective? Are there currently protocols that if I want to borrow money for something, some capital expender, a house, a car, a credit card, where I can get something competitive in the DeFi world uh, versus TradFi? Yeah, so uh, MakerDAO specifically has an extremely low cost of capital for borrowing. This is because you know MakerDAO generates the liability in the system. But this system is collateralized lending, right? Yes, it's collateral. It's secured. Got so it. uh, just to give, I can give you a real example. So there's a borrower called 6S Capital. They approached MakerDAO through our decentralized governance process, and they were able to uh, get voted in a 15 million die facility against their assets. Now their assets are credit tenant leases. So they go out there and they will buy a piece of dirt, they'll build up a, a store on top of it, and then they'll sign a lease with a, uh, a retailer. And maybe that whole process takes six to nine months. And in the interim, while it's happening, they put the senior lien to all those assets into yeah. a trust. And that trust acts uh, within the will of the maker holders effectively. So their rate, I believe, when they're onboarded is 3%. So the, I think you know, the, their legacy cost of capital is much, much higher than that. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.